Welcome to today's edition of the College Experts Talk podcast, the resource for parents and students navigating the college planning process. Felicia Gopal, founder of collegefundingresource.com and creator of the College Decision Navigator System, talks with world-class college planning experts who openly and honestly share the triumphs and challenges families face every day in helping their children get into and pay for the colleges of their choice. We want you to feel like you're sitting down with our experts and getting their best ideas without paying their considerable consulting fees. So sit back and relax as Felicia interviews others about the issues and concerns of selecting colleges, competing for a coveted place in a class, and ultimately paying for the colleges that admit your kids. This is Felicia Gopal of College Funding Resource. With me today, I've got my friend and the host of Protect Your American Dream and also the owner of Faithful Assistance online empowerment center. She's one of my partners and I'm more than happy today to have Janae Sasso on the line. Renee? Thank you for having me, Felicia. Absolutely. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to turn the tables a little bit and Renee is going to be asking me all the questions that a lot of parents are asking themselves about the whole college planning process. And today what we're going to be talking about is we're just going to talk about the various different types of financial aid that are out there and available. I'm going to spend some time really kind of going through them in a little bit more depth, and hopefully you will have a better understanding of the various different financial aid that's out there and available and have an idea of how to go about applying for getting your portion of it. All right? All right. Well, I know that financial aid is a scary topic for most people, I would assume, especially for my clients and people that I work with and come across. So tonight's topic about financial aid should be very helpful, not only to them, but to me, because uh, I have two little ones. So I definitely need to stay on top of this type of information. And I remember my own situation of applying for financial aid. I really didn't know a lot, and I don't think my mom knew a lot either. So we, I think we kind of got gypped out of a lot of the whole process of making it a smooth one and I remember going to college and being told that I need to pack my car back up and go back home because I can't afford to go to school at the school that I went to so you know the financial aid process definitely has a lot of twists and turns that I was not aware of so could you explain the financial aid process and who in fact is eligible? Absolutely. So who is eligible? Everybody's eligible for some types of financial aid. And that sometimes is a little bit of a surprise for parents. But the question is not, are you eligible for financial aid, but really what types of financial aid you're going to qualify for. So there's basically three types of families when I think of financial aid. There's those families who've got relatively modest needs, and they're going to qualify for lots of financial aid at the right schools. There's also families that kind of fit into the middle category. They're going to qualify for some financial aid at schools that are good partners. And then there's the last category of parents and families that are not going to qualify for any need-based financial aid. So when I'm talking about financial aid, in this circumstance, I'm really talking about need-based financial aid offered by the federal government. Okay. And how much financial aid is available for people? Well, there's about $130 billion that was available from the federal government in 2006. 
So that's quite a bit of financial aid. But remember, there's a lot of people competing for that $130 billion. It's not just you and your family. It's you and your family and all the other families across the United States who've got seniors and kids in college and stuff like that. So there's a lot of financial aid available, but there's a lot of people competing for that same financial aid. And I really want to kind of back up and talk about who has the primary responsibility for paying for students' education. So a lot of families, when I talk to them, are really hoping and praying that it's going to be the colleges themselves or the federal government that are going to provide most of the financial aid. And that may or may not be true depending upon your expected family contribution, but you need to understand that from the federal government's standpoint, really the first person that is going to be responsible for paying for your student's education is you and your family. It's not Mm -hmm. the government. It's not the colleges. It's not anybody outside of the people in your four walls. So Mm -hmm. you need to understand that there's an expectation that if we're going to help educate your kids, you're going to have to do something in order to do that. And so one of the ways that they do that is they put together a formula called the expected family contribution. So the expected family contribution is how much you and your family are going to be expected to pay at the various different schools that you're applying for. Oh, okay, okay. So people have to understand that they're going to be required to make some changes in their lifestyle, perhaps on their spending habits and so forth, in order to accommodate this expected family contribution. Well, I won't say they will, but I'm going to tell you that it's probably true, because your expected family contribution for a lot of the parents that I sit down with is always a surprise. And they always just like, don't they realize that I live in this area and it's very expensive to live here and have a house and have a car and have all the various different things that kind of go along with that. And the government doesn't really care, you know, how much it costs to run your household. They basically take all of your income, your assets, the family size, the age of the oldest parent, and how many students are in school, and basically come up with a calculation that says this is how much out of all the stuff that you've got that you're going to have to contribute to your son or daughter's education. That doesn't in any way include all the expenses that you may have in order to run your family's household. They're just looking at your income and your assets. They're not paying a whole lot of attention. They're not paying any attention, really, to your expenses. So, you know, how expensive it is to run your household doesn't come into play very much in expected family contribution. Okay, so how does one get started? What is the financial aid process then? Before you really even fill out the form, the free application for federal student aid, there's a bunch of documents that you're going to need. You're going to need your Social Security number. The student is going to need their driver's license number if they have one. They're going to mm-hmm. need to gather your W-2 forms and any records of any monies earned. It's also a good idea to have copies of your tax returns. If you haven't filed your tax returns when you're filling out the form, and you probably have not, then just use an estimate of your income has not significantly changed from one year to the next from last year's taxes, and then you can always amend it. So we're needing the student's tax returns. In addition to that, we will also need the parent's tax returns. We're going to need any untaxed income records like their Social Security, temporary assistance for needy families, any welfare benefits, 
any veterans benefits. You're also going to need copies of your current bank statements. That's not including your retirement plans, just your mm-hmm. bank statements, brokerage statements, any business or investment mortgage information, not your personal home, but any homes that you might own in addition to your personal home. If you're a business owner and you have more than 100 employees, how much your business is worth, any stocks, bonds, investments. And if you're a permanent resident, you will also need your permanent resident card. So that's kind of all the information that you're going to need prior to filling out the FAFSA form. You go online. You can also do it on paper. You would go online typically, and that's generally the fastest way to do it. And if you don't happen to have a computer at home, you can always go to like a library and complete it there or at your school. There's lots of different resources for how you can complete it online. It's the fastest way to get it done. The first time you can fill out the FAFSA form is January 1st of your senior year. So anytime after January 1st, you can fill out the FAFSA form and turn it in. It's important for people who are going to need to get financial aid that you make sure that you get it in as soon as possible because a lot of financial aid is on a first-come, first-served basis. After you've completed your FAFSA form, what will happen is the government processes that, and then they send you a student aid report. The student aid report gives you some really important information. The most important information that it provides you is it gives you your expected family contribution. This is how much your family is going to be expected to pay for your son or daughter's college education. So that's very, very important information. It's important also once you get your student aid report to make sure that you take a look at it, make sure that the information on it that went into it is accurate because if it's not, you may be in a position where you are not qualifying for financial aid that you might be able to qualify for. So make sure that you take a look at it. Don't just take the numbers and assume that it's all right. You want to make sure that it's accurate. After you get the student aid report, that information is sent to the families and your family, and then it's also sent to the colleges. On the FAFSA application, you are basically indicating the schools that you would like to get this information. Typically, you would put anywhere between six and ten schools on there that you would like the information sent to. Once the schools receive the information, then they're going to be in a position where they put together a financial award letter. Financial award letters will tell you how much they're offering you in grant money, scholarship money, and student loans, work study, any of those sorts of things is typically what's on a um, award letter. What I tell parents and I tell families is that they need to really be aware that award letters can be appealed, but they can't be appealed just because you didn't get the money that you wanted to get. There usually has to be a really good reason. So if you've lost your job since then, if something happened, your business failed, those sorts of things or things that might put you in a position to have the college use professional judgment and put together a better financial aid package. The sooner you tell them of any kind of large changes in your circumstances, the better position you might be to qualify for additional dollars if they believe that this is something that's important and they want to put together a better package for you. Let me give you a for instance. I was working with a family a couple years ago, and what was happening is the husband had to go into a nursing home. So monies that on paper 
showed going into the family really wasn't going to the family. It would go into the family, and then it would flow right back out to the nursing home. And so it was important to write a letter that basically indicated this money that you're saying is coming into the family is coming into the family. We're not saying that it doesn't come into the family, but it goes right back out to this nursing home. We basically okay. showed them that the husband was in a nursing home. He was going to stay in a nursing home. Nothing was going to change about that, and we're able to get some additional financial aid. So it really kind of depends on the circumstance. And you definitely want, if you're in a position where you're going to need some better financial aid, if you can put together a compelling reason why they might want to award you with some additional financial aid, it never hurts to ask. Oh, of course not. Of course not. So everyone should apply for aid. You don't assume that you won't get it. Well, because there's different kinds of aid. There is need-based aid, and you may not qualify for any need-based aid, but that doesn't mean that your student might not get merit-based aid, and you may want to take advantage of student loans. If you want to take advantage of some of the student loans because the interest rates are better, you may want to take advantage of that. I was talking with a gentleman who has a son who had inherited some money right before he was going off to college, and the interest Mm -hmm. rates on student loans were very, very favorable at the time. So when he looked at it and what he could borrow the money for versus how much he would end up having to pay back in student loans, it just made more sense to leave the money in the account to grow and have his son take out student loans. So his son ended up taking out student loans for about $17,000. He had about $23,000 in his account, and now that he's graduated, he took a look at that point about whether or not he wanted to take that money and pay off his student loans. But again, the rates that he had were so favorable that he could very easily afford the debt on his student loans and instead Mm -hmm. has continued to let the money grow. So at 32 years old, this kid has got about $32,000. You know, that's the power of applying for financial aid. You may be able to take advantage of circumstances like that where it may make more sense. It may be better for you financially to let the money grow for you and take out student loans if the student loans are favorable at the time. So you're saying that there's different types of financial aid. What are the different types? Let me talk about grants. Grants are um, one of the areas that parents always want to know something about because it's free money. Everybody wants free money, so Mm -hmm. let me start with the free money. Again, these are programs that the federal government offers. There's the Pell Grant program. The Pell Grant program has limits every single year, so you can get as little as $400 up to like $4,050 in 2006-2007. They haven't set the rates for 2007-2008 yet, so I'm not sure what the rates are going to be. It may be a little bit of a bump from there. But basically, you get it. It's a need-based. So the people who get Pell Grants have financial needs. Okay. One of the other grants that's offered by the federal government is the Supplemental Educational Opportunity Grant. And again, this is money that does not have to be paid back it's got annual limits of anywhere between $100 and $4,000. And the amounts change over time. So you get smaller amounts in your freshman year and you get more money as you get older and older or as you matriculate from freshman to sophomore to junior to senior. So um, you can get more money at the end than at the beginning. So that's the supplemental opportunity grant. If you get a Pell Grant, you typically will get a supplemental educational opportunity grant. 
the thing that's good to know about Pell Grants is if you have need, you will get the money. So the federal government will give the school all the money that they need for everybody who's going to get Pell Grants. Unfortunately, the Supplemental Opportunity Grant is there's a finite amount of money. They'll give them X amount of dollars. Once that money is gone, if you are a late filer of your financial aid, if you qualified for a Supplemental Opportunity Grant, you may not get it because you've missed the money. The money has dried up. Mm-hmm. The next program I'd like to talk to you about is the Academic Competitive Grant. The Academic Competitive Grant was something that the government created in the last couple of years. And basically, it's for your first year and second year in school. In the first year, you can get up to $750, and in your second year, you can get up to $1,300. Typically, in order to qualify for this, you've got to be basically a good student. And what the government describes that is you've got to graduate from high school, you've taken a couple of advanced placement classes and gotten scores of three on them, have taken you know four years of English, three years of math, algebra one or high three years of science, one of the classes has to be biology, another one's got to be chemistry or physics, three years of social studies, and one year of a foreign language. So that's what the government considers a rigorous program. If you have done that as a high school student, then you would be in a position that you might be able to get the academic competitiveness grant. The other grant that the government came up with around the same time that they came out with the Academic Competitiveness Grant was the SMART grant. It's the National Science and Mathematics Access to Retain Talent Grant, the National SMART grant. That's a mouthful, and the way that we describe it in the industry is the SMART grant. (laughs) I don't think anybody's talking about the national science, et cetera, et cetera. But it's up to $4,000 in each of your third or fourth years. This is actually one where the government is really trying to encourage students to go into certain majors. So they're looking for students that are going into majors in the sciences, engineering, that sort of thing. So it's computer sciences, life or physical sciences, engineering, technology, mathematics, or what they call a critical need foreign language. You've got to maintain a 3.0 grade point average in order to get these grants, but they're um, a new grant that is open and available to students who qualify for those. So those are the four programs that the federal government offers in terms of grants. In addition to grants that the federal government offers, there's also grants that the states offer. So each state has got an educational authority, and um, the educational authority for each of the states has got grants that they offer to students. Oftentimes the grants are tied to going to school in that state or going to a public school in that state not always the case, but oftentimes a lot of the states have got programs that say you've been a good student in high school and you're interested in going to state locally and you've had a great certain grade point average, then we'll offer you a grant that you can use at any of the state colleges or university in a state. So there's that. Also, the colleges themselves may in fact have grants that are available. The things to remember about grants are they're need-based. So if your income, your assets is so high that you don't qualify for any need-based aid, typically you will not get any grants offered to you. Okay. So that's grants. And let me talk about the other source of free money that parents are always interested in, which is scholarships. <laughs> I've got some bad news about scholarships. About only 2% of the funds that pay for college come from scholarships. There's lots of scholarships out there, but what I tell parents is, let's go after the easy money. And what I mean by the easy money is, 
you have aunties, uncles, family members, friends who belong to organizations or churches, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, that offer scholarships. Oftentimes, yeah. you may have to write a letter, you may have to write an essay, those sorts yeah. of things, in order to get it. I talk about my mother belongs to a sorority, and she made sure that I got the scholarship from the sorority, plus my niece got the scholarship from the sorority. All of her okay. friends, as her friends were, kids were graduating, all of them got scholarships from the sorority. That was easy money. If you belong to a church or you're a member of a church or your family member is a member of a church, oftentimes those guys have scholarships. I have been asked to participate in the ACAP program by the National Association of Black Accountants. It's a program that introduces students to areas of finance as a potential for majors. So, okay. uh, you know, learn something about accounting, learn something about auditing, learn something about finance, learn something about maybe financial planning, all the various different things that might fit under the finance category. They okay. usually have somebody who comes in and speaks. But I speak to the parents about, you know, what are you going to need to do to prepare your kids for college? One of the things that the head of that, Thomas Hampton, has shared with me is despite the fact that he spent the summer with these kids and has told them we have scholarship money that's open and available to you, he still does not get enough applicants from the students who have been involved in his program to provide all the money that they have to give. And I think that's a shame. I think that's really a shame because this is money that they want to give away. They're planning on giving away. Uh, They're giving it away to people who've been through their program, and they just don't get enough students who've been through their program applying for their monies. I mean, that's, in my mind, pretty easy money for you to go. They're going to give it to people who went through their program. You went through their program, so go ahead and apply. So it's about that sort of thing. The other thing I always talk to parents and students about for scholarships is around September, October, December, I start getting a lot of emails from friends, family, people who know that this is what I do, saying, you know, I just heard about such and such scholarship. You need to send this out to everybody that you know in order to apply for the scholarship. Well, typically when I get the notice, If I was to send it out immediately, the kids might have a week or two to put together what they need in order to qualify for the scholarship. That doesn't give them enough time to really put together their best foot forward. So what I usually suggest is in your junior year of high school, start to identify and look for scholarships that you're planning on applying for and put together basically a spreadsheet. The spreadsheet would have all the various different scholarships that you're applying for, and it's got the dates that the application is going to be released, the dates that the application is going to have to be sent back so that you can Mm -hmm. take the time. You really want them to get significant scholarship money. It's almost like that needs to be their part-time job in their senior year. You know, they're applying to colleges and they're applying for scholarships. You need to put some dedication into it. Take the time in the year before that to line up the people who are going to write your letters of recommendation. Take Mm -hmm. the time to ask for the application for the previous year because typically there's not a big change between one year or the next in terms Mm -hmm. of the basic application. Do whatever you can now to prepare yourself for the scholarships that you're going to apply for in the future so that you're able to get together the deadlines. You don't want to be in a position where you're asking a teacher who is writing 
getting, you know, umpteenth letters of recommendation tomorrow. You know, I need this letter of recommendation tomorrow for the scholarship that I'm asking for. It doesn't mm-hmm. put them in a great position, and they may not be able to honor that. So you definitely yeah. want to make sure that you go ahead and ask the questions and know that in advance. I'm a big one for preparation. So to the extent that you can do preparation in advance and putting yourself in the best position for scholarships, I think that that will be the key that gives you the scholarship money that you're looking for. The other thing I want to tell everybody is the fact that one of the big surprises sometimes from parents' perspective is if you secure a bunch of money for scholarships, I'm just going to make a number and say Mm -hmm. that you were able to get $10,000 in scholarship money. One of the biggest surprises for them is, remember I was talking about your expected family contribution, how much you're expected to pay? Yes. Well, the big surprise for families is the fact that they say, if I get $10,000 of scholarship money, that means that my expected family contribution will be reduced by $10,000. No, that's not actually how it works. How it works is the school will take away $10,000 of the money they were going to give you for financial aid. Your expected family contribution will stay the same. Okay. And that's always a big surprise for them. So you need to ask the question um, when you're going after scholarship money, ask the school, how will this offset my expected family contribution? Generally doesn't happen. Or will it offset the monies that you give me for financial aid? And one of the things that you may not be aware of is the more need that you have that the school puts together is they typically will give you more of it in free money as opposed to student loans. Okay. So if you had a need of $15,000, what you may find is 60 to 70% of that might be free money if the school was in a position to put together those kinds of competitive financial aid packages. And only 25% in my example would come from money that has to be paid back in terms of loans. But if you've taken basically $10,000 out, then that means that they've got $5,000. You may find out that whole $5,000 tends to be maybe a work study and then a loan. Exactly, exactly. So that is scholarships and grants. The next area that I would like to talk to you about is work-study. Did you participate in a work-study program when you were in college? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I remember work-study. What type of job did you have? I think I work in the little pub that we had at the school where the kids could go and hang out. Got it. I'm like you. I got work-study when I was in college. And my work-study positions were all over the board, you know. I worked in a woman's center on campus. I worked in the career center of my campus. And that was actually an interesting position because basically what I did in that position is I got to proctor tests. So, you know, kids were coming in and had to take SATs or whatever, and I'm the one who was standing over there making sure that they didn't cheat. So, you know, I mean, you had all sorts of things. Sometimes I typed and sometimes I had a position in a museum. So there's all sorts of different types of things that you can do. There may be on-campus activities that you get as work-study. There's off-campus activities that you get as work-study. The thing that you need to know about work-study is it's administered by the school. There's a set number of dollars that you have, and you can't work more than that set dollar amount. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. thing about financial aid, when you get a financial aid award, is you can always turn it down. So oftentimes I talk to parents about the fact that they don't necessarily want their kids to work while they're in college, especially their freshman year. They don't really want them to work. But the thing about if you turn down work study, which
which is certainly your why, then the $2,000, $3,000 in work-study money now becomes money that you, the parent or the student, are going to have to come up with. You know, if you turn it down, it's going to be money that you're going to have to come up with. And I think it's important. And typically, most work-study positions are not going to cause you to spend so much time that you're not able to invest in your studies. So my suggestion is participate. If you get work-study, take the work-study and put in the hours. You know, if you can put in the hours early before you start to get into midterms and finals, that puts you in a better position. Oftentimes, you can do that. So that's work-study. The next area that I wanted to really kind of talk about is loans. Loans are becoming more and more important in the whole college planning process. A lot of students are graduating with debt. I remember when I graduated, I had a roommate, and she graduated with $10,000 of debt, and I just thought that that was really outrageous. But what I'm learning is that a lot of students now are graduating with debt, and sometimes they're graduating with significant debt. And the average debt for public schools is about $17,000, and for private schools is about $23,000. So mm. students are graduating with that. So if yes, I thought $10,000 was really outrageous, I can't imagine what I would think about $23,000 worth of debt. But students are having to take on more and more of the cost of paying for their own education. The thing that I really want to caution parents about and students themselves about is you also have to think about what type of job are you going to be able to get out of college that's going to support the level of debt that you're going to have. So an example is I'm an expert on one of the expert sites online, and there was a student who was telling me about the fact that she graduated from a school and she wished somebody had told her that taking on the level of debt you're about to take on when you want to work in social work may not make a whole lot of sense. So in this particular case, Let's say that she had a choice of going to a public school or a private school. And the public school, she was going to end up with $60,000 of debt, and at the private school, she might end up with $20,000 worth of debt. Well, when she okay. gets out of school, she's going to be making maybe $35,000. You know, $35,000 in social work, in order to make better money, you've got to have the master's degree. An undergraduate degree doesn't really get you much. Mm-hmm. You've really got to need the master's degree in order to really kind of progress and make more significant money. So that being the case, you can graduate with $20,000 going to a public school or $60,000 going to a private school. That's a conversation that parents really need to have with their kids because their kids are used to living at a certain level of income and modesty, and sometimes they may not be able to support that level when they first graduate if they're planning on getting their first apartment, buying their first home, buying your first car, you know, all the things that you do when you first get out of college. There's lots of stuff that you feel like you have to have at that time. Mm -hmm. And you want to be able to have a nice lifestyle, but you don't want to strangle yourself with debt. So be careful with the level of debt that you take on. There's basically a couple of different kinds of loans that are out there. There is the Perkins loan. Perkins loan is a a need-based loan. It's one that you will only get if you have need. It's got a sliding scale on how much you can borrow on it. For your undergraduate, you can get up to $4,000 a year, and you can take out as much as $20,000. The limit, I think, just bumped up to $30,000. 
and you can also get a Perkins loan in graduate school. You can get a Stafford loan, both a subsidized and an unsubsidized Stafford loan. A subsidized Stafford loan means the federal government is paying your interest while you're in school, and you don't have to start paying it back until after you graduate. And a subsidized loan means that the federal government is not paying your interest. Either you can pay it yourself or you can let it ride, and then it would be capitalized into the loan at the end, and you would just pay it once you graduate or separate from school. That's the Stafford loan. Generally, when I'm talking to parents, I usually am highly encouraging them to go ahead and take the Stafford loan. And I'm a big proponent for having skin in the game. I think it's important that students have skin in the game. I think they need to understand the value and understand that mom and dad are making an investment in their education. And it's important that they make an investment in their education. It's about getting good grades, but it's also taking on some of the responsibility of their own education. A Stafford loan is one of the ways that I generally talk to my parents about encouraging that in their kids. Those are both student loans. Both the Perkins loan and the Stafford loan are both student loans. Those are loans that are taken out in the name of the student. The Mm -hmm. Parent Plus loan is a loan taken out in the name of the parents. It's a credit-based loan, so if your credit is less than perfect, you may not qualify for a plus loan. The thing that's interesting about a plus loan and the thing to remember about a plus loan is you can borrow up to the cost of college. Okay. So the cost of college is all the things that are involved in attending school. So it's your tuition, your books, your fees, your room and board, all those sorts of things is the cost of college, and every single college has a cost of college from community colleges on through private school. So in order to know the cost of a college, you could just go on to any college's website, and they'll have that typically on the financial aid page. They'll have the cost of their college. They might have it on the admissions page, but typically in one of those two places. So that's the cost of college. Minus any financial aid you get. So if you get a financial aid of, call it, $5,000, then that's how much you're going to be expected to pay, and then your total need would be anything below that. So if we're going to use an example of public college and a private school. So say that the average cost of a public school is $15,000 and the average cost of a private school is $30,000. It's actually a little mm-hmm. bit more, 17 and 33, but I want to make my math easy. So it's $15,000. I want your expected family contribution is $5,000. So it's $15,000 for a public school minus your $5,000, then your financial need is? $10,000. $10,000. Okay, we're looking at a private school. Sometimes parents make the decision, well, I want you to go to the public school because the private school is going to be more expensive. In my example I'm just using, it's twice the cost of the public school. So it's $30,000 minus $5,000 means that your total need is $25,000. So I might have changed my example, but that's what I was trying to do. So what I want you to get out of this example is your expected family contribution did not change. What changed over that period of time is the total need that you had. So your total need in the first example is it's $15,000 minus $5,000. Your total need is $10,000. In the other circumstance, in the private college, it's $30,000 for the college minus $5,000, so $25,000. Your total need is $25,000. So your expected family contribution has not changed, but your need has increased by $15,000. 
The thing to remember about it is some schools are good partners and some schools are not. So not all schools can afford to give you the entire $10,000. Say that they can only afford to put together a financial aid package for $5,000. So $5,000 from your $10,000 means that there's still a gap of $5,000. Well, the school has already given you their best offer. They've already given you $5,000 of financial aid. That means that you and your family are going to need to come up with that extra $5,000. It's mm-hmm. over and above your expected family contribution. So it's now $10,000 to go to that public school versus, in my example, $30,000 for the private school minus $5,000. Your total need is $25,000. This school is now in a position to put together a financial need package that will cover all of your need, all of your need. So instead, you end up with $25,000 of financial aid. So in this particular example, you're really only out of pocket that first $5,000, your expected family contribution at the private school, but you're going to be out $10,000 at the public school. So you want to make sure that your schools that you're considering are good financial partners. And as I said in this example, not all schools are good financial partners. And the the most important thing or one of the important things for you to know is they're going to be a good financial partner before your son or daughter Mm -hmm. has fallen madly in love with that school. Otherwise, there will be lots and lots of tears. Oh, yeah. I I mean, that's the reality. I was talking with a lady the other day, and basically she was at a seminar that I was offering, and what she said was that uh, she had always gotten really great grades, and she assumed that her parents had been saving all of her life for college. She applied to the school that she wanted to get into. She got into the school. She's ready to go, and her parents are like, well, how are you going to pay for that? And she looked at them and was like, what do you mean, how am I going to pay for that? You're going to go into the bank account that you've been putting aside since, you know, I was born, and we're going to take the money from there, and we're going to pay for college. Well, unfortunately, not every parent is in that position where they can pay for all of their child's education. So it's important to have a conversation with your parents about what your expectations are as a student as well as what their expectations are, what they can deliver. And from a parent's standpoint, I want you to listen and understand that you're not just educating one child necessarily. You may have kids two, three, or four behind that child, and you've got to think about that. I have two children who are three years apart, so there will be at least one year of overlap while they're in college. That means that I'm going to be paying for college for seven years in a row. Wow. Seven years in a row. One sat down with a parent who had their kids four years apart deliberately. And I was just like, you know, that's going to kill you because they had basically three kids. That means that they were going to be paying for kids' education for 12 years. You cannot afford to take all the money that you have saved up and use it on one kid's education if you've got two more that you need to educate. So it's important when I sit down and talk to parents to kind of get them to understand that it's not necessarily the commitment to get the first student through college, but there's also the other students that may follow. You've got to put together a plan that works not just for the one student, but works for the entire family. That's exactly what they do is they forget about. They concentrate on the urgent issue, and they don't necessarily think about the issues of how making decisions affect the other children. 
I, I have a colleague who always talks about the fact that he gets very frustrated when he talks to parents who've educated one child and now discover that people like myself exist are now sitting down and talking about child number two, child number three, and they don't have the same resources. He calls it a train wreck. It's a train wreck because they've made choices that means their future choices are severely limited, and that's really very, very unfortunate. Oh, yes. I know you were saying you don't want to take all your resources and put them into one child. Does your EFC change? I mean, I know the government is looking at your assets and things like that. Are you able to hold on to monies for the next child, or are those numbers included in the first child's ability to get the aid that they need? You know, does it hurt you to put the money to the side? How does that work? Well, it's a formula. So if you had said that you were a family of five and you have one child in college, then that pretty much tells them that you've got two more right behind it. You've got one child in college and then you've got two more kids right behind somewhere. And so they take that into consideration. So if you had assets, your parents are expected to contribute about 5.6% of the assets that they've got, not 100% of the assets they've got. Only 56 goes into their expected family contribution. So that's a workable number. So you should, at the end, if you sit down and talk to a professional like myself or have listened to this recording and apply it to your circumstance, you should have assets for child number two, child number three, unless you make some choices that are probably not choices that I would have recommended. Okay. So we have the grants, the scholarships, the loans. Is there anything else? or The loans that I talked about are the loans that are offered by the federal government. There's also a whole different range of loans that are alternate loans or educational student loans. There are loans that are in the name of the student where they're also credit-based loans. They're typically co-signed because students don't have a lot of assets, so they would would take out the loans in their name, and somebody would typically co-sign. It could be the parents. It could be somebody other than the parents that basically co-sign for them. So alternate loans are becoming an increasingly important part of this whole formula because they may give you more flexibility. Like one of my clients sat down with me and had taken out an alternate loan and it allowed her to not make any payments until her son graduated from college. You know, so that was a good thing because with the mm-hmm. plus loan, you have to start paying it back in the freshman year yeah. of college. So if they're first mm-hmm. year of college, they're a freshman, they have to start paying it back by February or March of their freshman year. So yeah. this particular loan allowed her to not make any payments until okay. her son graduated. Now, when we sat down and looked at it, we decided that we're going to at least make the interest payments on that because that would be very, very costly for her to completely wait. But, you know, oftentimes it has a little bit more flexibility on the loans than the federal government offers. So, you know, it just kind of really depends on your circumstance. I would say if you were going to pursue a student loan, you're going to pursue a loan, you definitely want to go with the federal loans first before you go to the alternate loan 
loans because a lot alternate loans are very expensive. They're credit-based loans, and the interest rates can slide. The federal programs, the interest rates are currently set at 6.8 and 8.5. The alternate loans can slide all the way up to about 17%. So it can make a huge difference. You're getting more flexibility, but much more costly to okay. borrow them. Okay. Wow, there's so much to learn about this process, and we've gotten some really good information. Are there any final thoughts that you would like to share with us? Well, there's a couple of different things. One is there's three types of families, and you've got to understand what type of family you are. Are you going to qualify for lots and lots of financial aid? Are you going to qualify for some financial aid if you've got a school that's a good partner? Or are you going to qualify for no need-based financial aid? I think it's important to know that up front. And one of the ways that you would know that up front is do two things. One is go online and fill out one of the EFC calculators. The EFC calculators will give you a pretty good approximation of what your expected family contribution is. In addition to that, the federal government has came up with the www.fasa forecaster.com. So basically go online and that will give you a good idea of how much financial aid you'll be able to get from the federal government. If you have those two pieces of information, that may help you eliminate the surprise of getting a financial aid award in your son or daughter's senior year that is a surprise to you. You're not getting as much financial aid as you thought you were going to get, and it's not the type that you were looking for. So go ahead and do those two things. In addition to that, one of the things that I always want to encourage parents is there is no financial aid for you. So it's important that you make sure that you take care of yourself before you take care of your kids' education. And what I mean by that is put some money aside into your retirement plan. Do not raid your retirement plan to pay for your kids' education because, as I said before, there is no financial aid for retirement. There is financial aid for students. It may not be the type of financial aid that you would prefer. It may be loans, but at least you can get loans for college. But there are no loans for retirement, so I think it's important that parents do that. I want to also encourage them to go ahead and fill out the form, the FAFSA forms. It preserves options for you. You may not think that you want to apply for a student loan, but if you haven't filled out the forms, you cannot get any federal student loans because that's one of the requirements. So you definitely want to go ahead and fill out the loans whether or not you think you're going to apply for financial aid or not. It preserves options for you, and I think that that's very important. The other thing is, remember in my example, is it can be just as as it could cost you the same or less to attend a private college versus a state college. So do not discourage your students from applying to private college because of the cost of college. Remember, when you're paying for college, you're not paying the retail price of the college. You're paying the wholesale cost. The wholesale cost includes all the financial aid that you've received and your expected family contribution. And there's lots of other things like tuition discounts. And ask for help. You know, do some research. Find out before you're going through this process how it will apply to you. There's lots of great money out there. There's lots of great resources out there for you. So go ahead and take the time to apply for that. 
So those are the things that I would probably want to leave everybody with. Again, this is Felicia Gopal of College Funding Resource. And with me today, I had Janae Sasso from Faithful Assistance Program and the host of Protect Your American Dream. I thank you very much for being with me today, Janae. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you for listening to today's edition of the College Experts Talk podcast. We hope you will join us again for our next podcast where we will continue to legally share college insider information with parents and students from the insiders themselves. For more information and to instantly download your free copy of the College Funding Resources Report titled Five Strategies That Parents Need to Start Using Today to Cut Their College Costs Tomorrow, visit www.collegefundingresource.com. That's www.collegefundingresource.com. This is Mike Elmore for the College Experts Talk Podcast.